Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, legal threats against journalism. So we all followed the trial against the New York Times. It was a defamation case. It was unusual in that it was allowed to go to trial, to go to a jury. Um, ultimately, the judge threw out the case. And even before the jury rendered its verdict, the jury actually came in later with a verdict that would have gone against Sarah Palin anyway. But there is a sense that it was a victory amidst a sort of growing storm of legal threats against reporters. There is another case against the New York Times, this one filed by Project Veritas, and, and that resulted in this incredibly unusual move by a judge to issue a prior restraint warning against the New York Times to keep it from reporting on Project Veritas. So there's a lot happening here. There's a lot of reasons to be concerned. I'm really happy to be joined by Stuart Carl. Welcome, Stuart. Hi, Kyle. So Stuart worked, uh, actually, he and I worked together for years at the Wall Street Journal. He was the lawyer for Reuters, and the, the job that he's most proud of, probably in his career, has been the fact that he's a lawyer for CJR. Everything else pales by, everything else pales by comparison. Everything else. Um, and everything. he still does that for us, as well as you're also an investor, a media investor. So, Stuart, let's talk about the Palin case first, and then we'll sort of try to, then we'll sort of pull back and put it in the broader context. Were you as surprised as everybody else that it went to trial in the first place? Um, no, in the sense that um, the judge, same judge who, who heard the presided over the case, he initially dismissed the case on the grounds that um, uh, uh, Governor Palin wouldn't be able to prove actual malice, actually, um, no. that her allegations were not sufficient. That was appealed to the Second Circuit. Yeah. Um, Second Circuit reversed, said, take another look at this. And at that point, the judge said, well, maybe a jury could reach that conclusion and therefore allowed the trial. So so at that point, I was not surprised. So mm -hmm. so in the beginning, it didn't surprise me. He dismissed it, given her prominence, the speed of the correction um, and a lot of her allegations, which really didn't get played particularly strong in the trial, were about uh, his family, um, you know, the brother who's the senator, his views on gun control and other things. Um, so, you know, and that initial decision made a lot of sense to me. Um, but once you got past the Second Circuit uh, or the Second Circuit Senate back, it didn't surprise me. And I mean, I, I, I always hear from lawyers who say that once it goes to a jury, like anybody, it's anybody's guess, right? I mean, it's yeah. when you get to that, you have no idea what's going to happen. Right. And well, look, the, the scary part with any uh, defamation case that's thrown in the jury is it involves an error. Right. The New York Times made a mistake here. The New York Times corrected very quickly. Um, we can talk about how, how fulsomely and effectively. But it, whenever you go to a jury and say, we made a mistake, but you should still rule in our favor, that's a pretty big ask. Um, the law may require it, as it did here, the judge found. But it's still a pretty big ask. And it's pretty embarrassing to have to go through that, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I thought that, I mean, I thought, I thought a lot of things about it. One is, I thought that a lot of the detail about how the Times works and the back and forth with different editors and the response by James Bennett, and it all looks bad, right? I mean, anytime right. you sort of like get into the sausage making, it never looks great. Right. 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 Um, and, and, and in particular, it's an editorial and you're watching the editorial sausage get made. So that's going to involve 
you know, unlike a news story, you know, much more directly, it is going to reach a conclusion and make specific criticisms. Yeah. So it's not like you're struggling to get facts on deadline. Here you're struggling to make an argument on deadline. So that's going to look even worse no matter what. Yeah. And so ultimately, so there were two, uh, the way I read it, there were two problems that she had that ultimately led the judge to throw the thing out. One was they, she couldn't prove that Bennett or the Times was malicious and that they intended to get her, right? Right. And the right. other thing was, like, she proved no damages. Like, no, what, what, was, what was she arguing that happened as a result of this? Right. Did, he, did the right. judge take that into account, or was that, was that not in his, in his reason for dismissing the case? He, he, didn't, he, hasn't, he hasn't issued the written opinion yet. Um, but in talking about it, what he really focused on was essentially the, the it, and I listened to a good part of um, Mr. Bennett's testimony, not all of it, but a good part of it. And, you know, his anguish at making this mistake seemed awfully sincere. And it didn't seem as if just because he'd, you know, been called out on it and was testifying, it seemed quite genuine. At the time, even, not just in hindsight, at the yeah. time. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Look, I've, you know, I've done all this, you know, you described working together at the journal and I was at Reuters and all, and, and I've spent a lot of time defending journalists. I've never met a journalist who is happy about having made a mistake. Yeah. And, and I think this was totally consistent with that. So, but, but I think listening to Bennett's testimony, listening to the process within the times, as messy as it was, um, as uh, negligent as it was in the sense that um, there were, there were errors in procedure here uh, that were, negligent um uh i think the times even would describe them as as you know not they weren't deliberate but they were a bit careless um that uh but the judge looked at that weighed that evidence and concluded that no reasonable jury could decide that he intended to um defame uh governor palin right so that was the, the critical part the, the the absence of of damages um you know it uh especially from someone who has made her reputation and brand about her, um, you know, uh, her toughness and her willingness to engage in, in, uh, you know, serious intellectual or, or political combat, I guess, um, her getting on the witness stand and talking about how mortified she was about this, you know, there were no actual damages associated with that. There was nobody who came in and said that that person thought less of her yeah. uh, or even that anybody actually thought it was true. Um, so, so that absence, I think, you know, wasn't to me at all surprising, and I think didn't certainly didn't help her in uh, uh, probably anybody's mind thinking, well, maybe she really should get something out of this. I think even her lawyers at one point were just saying, give her essentially, you know, uh, a small, you know, token amount of damages to show that you know you're siding with her kind of thing. Yeah, I was sort of surprised that she 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 didn't even claim that she like had emotional damage if, if I if I read it right, I and mean, she didn't even claim that like you know that it caused her at all like sleepless nights or whatever. I didn't even hear any of that. No. And, and again, given the way she presents herself to the world and the way she generally has acted, and this is not a criticism. I mean, yeah, I, I respect it is the idea that she would be, you know, shattered by this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, this kind of statement about her by the New York times in particular right. um, to its readership, it wouldn't have rung true. No. So in fact, I kind of respect her for that. I've, I've been in defamation yeah. cases where you know people have cried on the witness stand, and I thought it was just obviously fake. Um, <laughs> I think you know, I think she told the truth. I respect that about her. She she didn't pretend she had suffered some you know harm that she hadn't, uh, and she just she said basically she read it. She was she was kind of mortified, um, 
and uh, and it was rapidly corrected. So I think the jury's left with and the judge and the public is okay, bad mistake. Um, shouldn't have said it. They corrected. What what's the problem now? Yeah. So talk to me about where this fits into where we are, where we sit right now in terms of uh, how vulnerable the press in general is to claims like this or claims our prior restraint claim claims like the uh, Westchester judge case in the um, Veritas. I mean, um, how worried should we be in general? I think you should always be worried. I, I mean, this case, I think, is kind of it may not be at an end procedurally, but but there is a concern and it's it's based um, uh, on sort of public um, uh, public statements by various people. But in particular, a couple of um, opinions out of the Supreme Court. One was actually a concurrence in a, the court deciding not to take a, a defamation case. And the other was a dissent. And uh, two justices in particular uh, uh, wrote at length, uh, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch, uh, about the um, need to revisit New York Times and Sullivan. And you know, anytime you have justices saying that, you should be concerned. Uh, it's happened before. It's happened before, but that, by the way, hmm? is the actual malice case, right? Um, right. That's that's why we I, care so much about that as it relates to public officials. Public officials, and and ultimately, very quickly thereafter, public figures. And it basically says someone who is a public official or is a public figure in the sense of being actively, at the very least, actively engaged in a in debate over a public issue. That that person not only has to prove the statement about them uh, that was published was false and defamatory and caused harm, but it also has to prove that it was published um, based on what the court described as actual malice, which is knowing the statement was false or acting in reckless disregard as to whether it was true yeah. or false. Yeah. Um, so that's the core holding that the United States at that point became uh, the, the first country really to, to, to um, engage with the idea of protecting speech on matters of public concern about public officials and, and these sort of prominent people, uh, even if the statement was false. And, and that was a break from, from certainly common law precedent and precedent around the world. And the, you know, even as this is being criticized by these justices and, and there's a lot of discussion about it, most of the rest of the world is sort of following along with the United States approach and protecting far more speech that, that is inaccurate uh, but is on matters of public concern or about public officials and therefore there is a protection as long as basically you tried to get it right as the speaker. So if you right. try to get it right, uh, you should be protected, or that speech should be protected. Um, and that incentive to do better journalism is kind of at the heart of why I think that 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 opinion, the Times and Sullivan, that approach um, has has been followed broadly in the world. Yeah. But so I do think that so so that does raise issue. Look, I don't think this is the case that's going to overturn Times and Sullivan if the court wants to. Um, you know, if you look at it, you know, this is speech about this editorial was, was about a, a, an incredibly important matter. The, you know, the, the shooting of these uh, 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 public officials, uh, yeah. you know, including a member of the House of Representatives. It was, it was in the context of a, you know, a political act. Um, it was highly discussed. It's got gun violence, all that. Um, I, I just don't think that's the one where the court's going to say, and, and you have Governor Palin, who was a former vice presidential candidate who was actively engaged in the public arena. How much she was at this point, mm -hmm. you can debate, but she certainly was in 2011 when she, her PAC published the original um, advertisement. Um, I don't think that's the one where the court's going to go back and say, you know, maybe this is the kind of speech that we really shouldn't protect or they shouldn't be protected. Yeah. I, I think even if they want to do that, I think they'd be much more likely to pick a much more, a much less prominent plaintiff and probably speech on a much less significant matter. 
Yeah. That that would strike me as the one where you look at sort of the edge case of do we really want to protect this? You know, this this you know something that hadn't been corrected probably, and and other things that would make it a case that probably put the issue in, in starker relief for everyone. Yeah, there was a there was a piece in the Times after this verdict that was looking at the sort of like climate, the apparent climate on the Supreme Court um, yeah. for uh, press freedom cases. Did you see this? And it was it mentioned there's a study out of the University of Georgia Law School that looked at some of the language that justices yeah. have used. And I, yeah. there's one there was one line that said the study revealed that phrases like, quote, freedom of the press once were routinely acknowledged by the justices, have now all but dropped out of the U.S. Supreme Court's collective vocabulary, um, which seems, that seems bad, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, but you'd have to look at it. It's like a lot of data points. I, I, I'd want to know, like, how many, how many, for example, press cases have gone to the Supreme Court recently? There were a whole lot more years ago yeah. as the court, you know, between 1964 and about 1986, the, the court heard a lot of free press cases. There's a lot of defamation cases. It hurt privacy cases. Like, there was a whole, there were, there were um, uh, other speech cases, pornography, the rest of the stuff. There, were, there was a lot of law being made there, uh, yeah. or at least clarified. Um, there's been less. Yeah, um, so there's not much for them to talk about. Yeah, well, and, and look, there are two couple, at least a couple of reasons for that. One is the law is pretty well established, which is one of the strong points in favor of not messing around with, the, with Time and Sullivan. And the other thing is, you know, bluntly, the, the American media doesn't have quite the resources it used to have to, to litigate every case on earth and take them all the way through appeal. Um, you know, this is a very expensive proposition for the New York Times. Um, you know, it's insured, but, you know, the, you think of the editor time, the legal costs, the years and years in this. Uh, these are expensive cases to get to trial, let alone take all the way up. Um, so, so, you know, I don't doubt those words are used less and maybe that's, um, you know, an inauspicious sign, but I would also look at how many of these cases are really, is the Supreme Court really taking, um, and how many is it deciding that really go to court free speech, free, uh, press issues. Yeah. But, but, but we do have now a, a group of very motivated, conservative, uh, deep pocketed people who are willing to fund cases like this more than has been the case. I mean, I thought it was fascinating that um, Charles Harder was in the courtroom. Um, oh, yeah. In case, did you see that? Um, oh, well, also, who paid for this? Well, like, that's Sarah question. Palin has had teams of lawyers. Yeah. Like, she, she had a first set of lawyers and she had, I think, different lawyers on appeal and then she had trial lawyers. That is not a cheap process. And, and maybe they're all volunteering, doubt it. Uh, maybe they all took it on a contingency, kind of doubt that too, because Sarah Paling suing for damages in the state of New York on an editorial corrected within 24 hours. I mean, what's the most you could get in damage that would stand up on that? Yeah. Um, you know, I just, I, I, don't, I don't know who paid for it. I actually asked a couple of reporters I know today, do you guys who, who you know, covered this, um, do you know who paid for it? They don't know who paid for it. Uh, I'd love to know. Yeah. But I mean, it does sort of bring in the bigger question of like, um, you know, the political climate, um, especially as it relates to how the press is seen as sort of oppositional um, and, you know, and and the willingness of people, of deep pocketed people to sort of like target the press, just like they used to target sort of political opponents. Right. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, and in an environment where the press has far fewer resources than they used right. to. Yeah. I mean, I, did, I still remember um, 
we, we published a piece a few years ago, and I actually think you you vetted it for us. I won't go into what which one it was, but but it was originally going to be published by a sort of like small local outlet, and yep. they sent it to us because they said, "Look, we've gotten a threatening letter about this. We can't we can't we can't we can't afford to take the risk. We can't publish this. Um, so we you know we're we're just going to take a pass and hope hope it sees the light of day." Um, and that's pretty chilling, I thought. Well, look, one of the great ironies is that it, looking at the Supreme Court, the two Supreme Court opinions, one by Thomas, one by uh, Justice Gorsuch, um, it, talking about how essentially the, the press is overprotected and look at all this false speech out there. Well, most of the false speech, deliberately false speech, is not by the press. If it's deliberately false, it's actionable even under Times and Sullivan. Um, but when you when you look at the cost and expense and you look at the, you know, the the different approach media, I think, has taken over the last 10 years in a period of more constrained resources, I think they're far more likely to correct than they used to be, which is probably to the better. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they're correcting things that aren't, aren't wrong. I think they're being much more open to, mm-hmm. to having made a mistake and how they can handle it. Mm-hmm. I think the internet has enabled that in a lot of ways, that corrections go out you know, that day mm-hmm. or that instant, or in this case, the following morning, but still it, didn't, it wasn't held an extra day to make the paper. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of those concerns about how the press is overprotected just aren't reality of how the press is actually operating and the threat they face from, as you point out, really well-heeled attackers who can can fund endless litigation. Have you seen the you know the, the case the, the the story that I just mentioned? That's a case of sort of preemptive non-publishing because people are worried yeah. about the impact. Have you have you run across an increasing number of those? Because I remember you know it seemed like for the longest time. Until this recent moment, there was this, there, there was, even amongst small kind of like scrappy places that didn't have a lot of resources, there's a, there was like an effort, like, we, th- we think this is right, we know it's right, and, you know, we, we're just going to publish. Um, uh, maybe, maybe that was never wise. I mean, I mean, again, you know, people were careful, but they just seemed a lot more gun shy right now. I think uh, anecdotally, I think that's right. Um, I, as you say, I can't sort of, I will tell you that there are maybe half a dozen times in the last few years where a small publication has asked me to take a look at something because their owner is concerned about publishing it all. And mm-hmm. they were really well-buttoned stories. And, and you know, I, I, I worked with them and they were all published. They um, were. That's good. Yeah. But uh, but you know it was it was a, an added layer review that probably wouldn't have happened to your point maybe ten years ago. I do think there is there's more of a sense and you know again the 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 folks attacking and um, you know like I have no problem with the press being challenged on their mistakes and and the press should be um, it seems to me I've always thought should be fulsome in recognizing mistakes and always consider you know, a challenge to the accuracy of a story, uh, you know, their job, the press's job is to look at that challenge and decide, did we make a mistake or not? And if they did, get that information to readers as soon as possible. That process to me is fine. Um, it's the it's the knowledge that, you know, a plaintiff who doesn't take, you know, yes for an answer um, can keep going, file the lawsuit, litigate it at least through motion practice and through appeal, um, and and much like in the Palin case, you know, a case that when it goes to the jury, the jury rules in their favor. The judge says no reasonable jury could have ruled against them. And the Times legal defense here surely cost millions and, you know, endless numbers of hours by you know senior people at the Times. 
Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen any data on this, but my guess, even just come from what I see here, is that there's all, that people feel um, a lot more free to sort of send threatening letters. Um, mm -hmm. Because they, I, I think they think that they might actually have an, they might actually have a shot. If they just send you a nasty letter that threatens litigation, given the climate that we're in, I think more people are backing, are probably backing off. It just seems like I, I, we get, and, and I've actually talked to other people about this as well, that they seem to be getting a lot of these, these sort of like, e even if they're bogus, right? Yep. Um, I don't know. Is that, you, you, you agree with that? I, you know, it, it may be, again, I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing for someone to engage with the subject of story to engage with a journalist reporting on it. Yeah. And if it comes in the form of we're going to sue you if you publish anything, that's not particularly productive. Um, if it comes in the form of, you know, here are the here are the facts that you don't understand. And if you get these wrong, I'll sue you. I don't like this, the I'll sue you part of it, but I like the fact that they're engaging over the facts. Yeah. So, so I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing. I think the, the problem is that because yeah, I guess actually what I was talking about more was peace already ran. You engage yeah. with them. The peace ran. They're saying, unless you take it down, we get that a lot. Um, yeah. Or change this, 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 we're going to see. Yeah, I think that I, I can't tell you there are more than there used to be. There, there may be. And I think um, I think there are probably more lawyers who are willing to write those letters than there were years earlier because because it. You know, it is again. It's expensive for the press, and and maybe they're more willing. And the digital format perhaps makes it easier to do. I wouldn't be surprised if there are more of them. I don't know whether they're more or less effective than they used to be. Hmm. I do think the self censorship part of it is probably you know the, the non publication, the stuff that doesn't get published, is the, is where the greater impact is. Before we go, is there any case that you have your eye on that you think is ominous that's kind of lumbering its way to us, or anything on the horizon that you know about? Well, there is that you mentioned the Project Veritas thing. I mean, that the prior restraint part of that, it's so preposterous that I, I can't really lose sleep over it because it just can't possibly stand. Um, but I would watch that. I think the other thing I think is the broad area of, of privacy and, and how that um, claims of privacy will impact reporting. There was a case that actually the, the uh, English Supreme Court handed down, I think, yesterday, which I've been watching for a while. And uh, I think it happened after... Um, Probably well, it was it was in my my materials for this year, but it's a case involving basically a report on a uh, by Bloomberg on a um, executive for a company who was being investigated, uh -huh. and basically the court said he had a privacy right not to be identified as the subject of investigation, um, you know, until charges were brought. And you think about that, and you think that's kind of crazy because you can get that information from lots of legitimate sources, you can get it from court records. That's not the law in the U.S. But I do think privacy is an area which is less developed as a as press protection. I think the public and judiciary are much more open to limitations that protect privacy. And I think that's, I think as a broad subject, I think privacy is one of the places to really focus on and yeah. think about, you know, what are the, are we overprotecting in some ways and how is that impacting journalism? So that's what I, I, I guess I worry more about. Stuart, thanks a lot. Okay, good luck. Um, you can read CGR's ongoing coverage of all of this at cgr.org. You can follow us on our daily email newsletter, The Media Today, and on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next week.